Amen, amen. If you have your Bibles, if you go ahead and take them out, open them up to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. I want to speak to you tonight on the subject of the king descended. The central question of Easter ultimately revolves around who is Jesus Christ because Jesus' big claim is that he is the Son of God and he would show you that he is the Son of God by dying on the cross and then rising again from the dead. Nobody can do that. Nobody can rise again from the dead. So who is Jesus Christ? If Jesus Christ is the Son of God, then the resurrection makes total sense. If Jesus is not the Son of God, then it it doesn't make any sense. I mean, people sometimes struggle with the miracle of the resurrection or perhaps even the miracles of the Bible. Well, ultimately, if you believe God exists, then the rest of the Bible is really pretty easy. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you believe that first line, in the beginning God, and that there is a God and that He exists and that He is powerful enough to create, then the rest of the Bible is quite easy. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then the resurrection is also easy to believe. Now, when it comes to Jesus, there are a lot of opinions. There are some that we would put in the mystical or pantheistic camp. And they might see Jesus as a supreme being who brought a gnosis or a greater knowledge with him to the earth. And so, through whatever means they teach, you ultimately try to channel the essence of Jesus. And if you do that, then you too can be Jesus. Not just be like Jesus, but you can be a, a Jesus-like person or figure. And then there's the secularists that are out there. And whenever they think of Jesus, some of them are antagonistic towards him. Some believe that he was a liar. Some of them might believe that he was a lunatic. But most people that we would classify as secularists, because they know a lot of Christians, they try to be at least reasonably respectful to you. And so when it comes to Jesus, they might say something like, he, he was a good man. And he taught love for all. He taught us that we ought to love our enemies. He was a good moralist. And then ultimately, he died. And the great lesson of Jesus is that he died for his cause. He held to his ethics to the point of a horrific death. Historically, there are a lot of groups that have splintered off of Christianity. Generally, whenever a group splinters off of Christianity, if you study what they teach, there is always a redefinition of Jesus. Usually, they begin to see Jesus as just a man. Perhaps Jesus is a prophet like Moses or Isaiah. Or maybe he's an example that we all follow after. Or perhaps he's a pathway. If you talk to people out there, there's a lot of opinions about who Jesus is. But here's an interesting question. What does the Bible have to say? Well, I want to read to you a few passages of Scripture. In Philippians chapter 2, where hopefully you are in your Bible, and that's where we will remain through the message tonight. But in the beginning of our passage in verse 5, the Bible says, Make your own attitude 
that of Christ Jesus. Now notice this part. Who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. In John chapter 1 and verse 1, the scriptures say, In the beginning was the Word. Now it's important that you understand if you read the context in John chapter 1, the Word is referring to Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it goes on to say, He was with God in the beginning. Jesus didn't come into existence in Bethlehem. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. Over in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, the Bible says this about Jesus. It says, He is the image of the invisible God. You want to know what God looks like? Wouldn't it be nice if we just had an image of God so that we could say to ourselves, this is what he looks like. The Bible tells us Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. What that means is he is the king or the heir to everything. It all belongs to him. He is sovereign over all creation for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible. Now, some of us need to take note of this next part. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. In Hebrews chapter 1, the Bible says this about Jesus. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Isn't it great that God has spoken to us? God is not a detached deity who just created us and said, good luck with that. God has revealed himself to us. He has spoken to us so that we might know God, his purposes and his ways. And the Bible says in the last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things. It all belongs to him. He is king over everything. He is the king of the universe. And in an ironic twist, not only has he been appointed heir of all things, but he also made the universe through him. Now catch verse 3. The Son, talking about Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory. That sun that was shining into the windows tonight as you walked in. The Scriptures spiritually talk about the Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory shining into the world. And then if that's not clear enough for you, the Bible says that the Son is the exact expression of of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. When we talk about Jesus Christ, that's what we're talking about. That's who we believe that he is. When we talk about the cross of Jesus and his death, On the cross, we believe 
It was the Son of God who was dying for your sins and mine there on the cross. Easter is a celebration of Jesus the Christ who is the Son of God, who is the radiance of God's glory, who is King over all creation, the Creator and Sustainer of all things. And Easter is a celebration of the One, the Son, who is the Giver of life. He is the King. But then a very interesting thing happened. The King descended. Okay, look at verse 7 in your Bibles. The Scriptures say he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as man in his external form, let's pause right there. Because I want you to notice that the king, the sovereign one, the one that we talked about in the previous verses, He made a divine choice through his father. He came and dwelt among us and he took on the likeness of men. And the Bible says that he assumed the form of a slave. He came into this world not uh, with pomp and circumstances. He came in humble circumstances, born in a manger amongst the animals, born under Roman oppression. We don't often think of Jesus this way, but in a sense, he was a slave not only to his father's will, but he was also a slave to the Roman Empire. He lived a life here on earth, just like you and just like me. If you read Hebrews chapter 3, it teaches us that he was our great high priest. The high priest was the one who presided over the sacrifices and the gifts that were brought to God. He is the great high priest, and it says he passed through the heavens. And then it says, in case you're wondering who we're talking about, Jesus, the Son of God. And then it says this about Jesus. Remember, this is the king, the king, the one that sustains all things. It says the king is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. It says the king has been tested In every way as we are. But there's one big distinction, Hebrews says. He lived without sin. The king descended. And yet the king's descent did not end whenever he reached the manger in Bethlehem. Sometimes whenever we're celebrating Christmas, we feel like the story of Christmas is the end of the story. Christ has come. Emmanuel is here. Everything is good. But to redeem us... The king had to descend even further. He had to descend into the valley of the shadow of death. And so verse 8 says these words, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Now, a lot of people have died, and a lot of people have died for their faith. But the next part of the verse says, Even to death on a cross. Now, immediately my mind goes to the horrors of the crucifixion. We think, well, he was humble to to death to the point of being willing to die such a terrible death. But it's even more than the physical suffering because there on the cross, he took on your sins and mine. And he bore the wrath of God upon himself. He was obedient to God's desire to the point of death, even the death of Christ on the cross where he bore the sins of humankind. 
We sing some great songs tonight. Uh, you would be hard-pressed. I, I know it's a little bit of a difficult song to sing, and can it be? Uh-huh, 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 you know? Google those lyrics, though, sometime between now and Sunday. You would be hard-pressed to find richer words than what John Wesley wrote in that hymn. My favorite hymn is Sir Isaac Watts' When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And as I was uh, meditating on this verse uh, this week, it reminded me of something that I wrote a while back on the collision of the cross. I uh, posted this online if you want to read it uh, online as well. But I, read, I wanted to read it to you this evening. The ringing of Calvary's hammer is a collision of pride and love. The cross is necessary because of my pride, but it is also necessary because of God's love. The cross is a clumsy display of my hideous pride and a graceful display of God's forgiving grace. On the cross, love is pierced by pride and grace is crowned by evil. On the cross, pride drains the veins of love and drop by drop, Pride's antidote puddles below. When his head bowed in death, pride raised his head in victory. But when the earth stood still and the tomb stood open, it was pride that had died and love that was alive. The antidote to pride is the cross. When I look upon the humility and love of the cross, I see the magnificence of his love for me, and I have nothing left in which to boast. From the cross, the purity of his righteousness shines into the corners of my heart. Exposing the darkness of my sin and contempt is poured on my pride. From the cross, the glories of money, power, and fame lose their allure. And my richest gain, I count but loss. At the cross, my broken dreams, my manipulated relationships, my cold soul, collide with love, and when my pride surveys his love, I bow beneath the cross, my faith is transferred from me to him, and the drops of grace cleanse me and make me fully whole. At the cross, pride dies, and love comes alive. Verse 9 of Philippians chapter 2 says, for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. Now catch this. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
for six hours on a Friday, the king descended into the darkness. But our king did not merely descend to the cold floor of death. He pierced the darkness, bringing light to all and life to all who believe. And that is the distinction between Jesus and other religious figures that have taught throughout history. The distinction between Jesus and Muhammad, Jesus and Joseph Smith, the Buddha, Gandhi. Gandhi. Jesus didn't ask you to simply follow his teachings and try harder. Jesus called you to believe. He called you to recognize the insufficiency of yourself and the sufficiency of himself and to place your faith in him. Christians call what happened on the cross, the theological term for it is the atonement. It's when Christ made the atonement for our sins as the great high priest who has passed through the heavens to earth. Sometimes whenever we break that word down in our own English language, it, we can break it down as the at one moment, the atonement, and we kind of spread it out. And it, it has resonance because it's the one moment that divides history in half. Christ dies on the cross for your sins and mine, and history is literally divided in half because of that. There's before Christ and after Christ. He has changed everything. But then there's also a question that we have to wrestle with. Have you had the at one moment in your life that divides the story of you in half? Has there ever been that moment in your life where you've recognized your own sin, and you've wrought your pride, and you've laid it before the cross, and you've received His love and His grace and His forgiveness, and you've trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Has there ever been that time, that at one moment time in your life that redefines who you are from the inside out? So that you begin to look at your life as this is my life before Christ. This was the moment when I bowed the knee and placed my faith in Christ. And this is everything else. I'm living life following Christ. Has there been that moment for you? If there hasn't, I am praying that tonight is that moment in your life. In fact, I'd like to ask you to bow your heads with me at this time. And I just want to ask you this question. Has there been this, that moment when you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, trusting in Him as your Savior and Lord? I'm not asking you if you go to church, if you have a, a father who's a pastor, granddaddy who's a pastor. I'm, I'm not asking you this. Has there been that time in your life where you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? And if there hasn't, I'm inviting you to make this moment, Good Friday 2016, right here in this church, your moment in time where you surrender your soul to Christ and you place your faith in Him. God's been at work in your life. He has put on His tool belt and He has been working in your life. This is your moment. Just go ahead and call out to God. You can use your own words, but you might say something like this, Heavenly Father, I have sinned and I need your forgiveness. 
I need you to do for me what I cannot do for myself. I repent of my sins and I place my faith tonight in Jesus Christ. I am trusting in him as Savior and Lord. And I'm asking you, God, to change me, to invade my life and change me from the inside out. Because from this day forward, I want to be a follower of Christ. If this is your moment, I really ask you to come see me. Tell me that you made that decision tonight because I want to be a pastor to you. I'm not going to embarrass you. I just want to encourage you and help you know what it means to follow Christ from this day forward. You guys can look back up this way. I realize that many of us in this room tonight are believers. And Jesus, right before the events of the cross began to rapidly unfold, he met in the upper room with the disciples and he instigated what we call the Lord's Supper. It's a symbolic meal. And he asked us as Christians, as disciples, to partake of the Lord's Supper. And when we do, we are remembering him. When we eat of the bread, we are remembering how Christ's body was broken for us on the cross. Whenever we drink of the juice, we are remembering that Christ's blood was shed for us and that through that blood, there is grace and forgiveness and hope and life change. Glory is brought to God. And so as Christians, we partake of the Lord's Supper in a symbolic fashion, remembering what Christ has, did, has done for us on the cross. So here in just a couple of moments, I'm going to ask you to stand. Our deacons are now going to go to the various stations around the room. There are three here at the front. There's one at the back. And depending upon where you are sitting in the room, you can go to the nearest station. And here's, here's what's going to happen. First of all, I want you to understand that if you haven't yet come to the point of being a believer in Jesus Christ yourself, we are glad that you're here. We want you to keep asking questions and learning, and we pray that you will make that decision in your own life to be a follower of Christ. Because the Lord's Supper is for those who are believers. If you're a believer, we ask you to, after I finish praying, go to one of these stations. The deacons will serve you the bread and the juice. After you've received those, go back to where you are sitting. If you're with your family, Spend a few moments of special family time where you pray together and thank the Lord for who He is and what He has done for you. And after you finish praying, then partake of the elements of the Lord's Supper. You say, well, I'm by myself. Well, we're a church family. And so you might have friends. You might have people that uh, you're close to that you want to join by. And some of us might say, hey, I just want to be by myself for a few moments. And that's okay, too. You can come receive the Lord's Supper. Go to a place in the room, spend some moments with God. And when you are ready, take of the Lord's Supper. While that is going on, Paul and the musicians will be leading us in a time of worship. So let's stand together. I'll pray. And after I finish praying, we'll come and partake of the table. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the riches of your love, for the abundance of your grace. And Lord, we lay down our pride at the cross 
And we are so thankful, Lord, that our pride is met with your grace. Father, we're thankful for the for the atonement that was made for our sins. And as we take of the bread, we are mindful of how your body was crushed for us. Lord, as we take of the juice, we are reminded that you have made a new covenant with us through your blood. And that in that covenant, there is grace and we stand before a throne of grace, not a throne of law. We're thankful, Lord, that that is how you relate to us who are in Christ. And so, Lord, it is in Christ that we find rest tonight. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.